0: episode 1699 of effectively wild a fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our patreon supporters i'm meg riley of fangraphs and i am joined as always by ben Lindbergh of the ringer ben how are you doing all right good and we are also joined today by a special guest we have craig goldstein the editor-in-chief of baseball prospectus hello craig
1: hello a special guest not just a guest I,
2: all of our So well, all of our guests are special so um <laughs> yeah. well whatever
1: you won't, you won't
0: <laughs> but, get us to pick between our children, but yeah, so hi Craig, thanks hello. for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. I am surviving cicada season right now oh. in in
2: Maryland. Yeah. Oh, what's that like? Yeah. I, I haven't seen a cicada where I am in Manhattan.
1: Right now, where I am, it has not been... Too bad. Uh, we have a, a lot of trees, which means it's going to get worse because, because I think they will come out, but they're very shaded. So I think the ground soil hasn't quite reached the point where they're coming out in mass, like literally at my house. And the ones that are coming out are getting eaten by birds, which I've, I've seen a few of, but just today we started hearing, like I can hear outside my window, just even with the windows closed, like the general thrum of the cicada noise happening so that was a first for today and and i can't say i'm thrilled about it
0: they strike me as very squishy i remember there being cicadas during one of the summers when i lived on the east coast like maybe it was when i was in college because you know they they only come out every now and again and they were just they had an unpleasant squish to them when you would step on them where you're like this is gonna require you know like rinsing to to get off my shoe Yeah. yeah
1: I, well, I'll be honest. I've done my best to avoid them so far, and have mostly just like swept them off off my deck when I've needed to this this year. My recollection from last time was like a crunchiness, but that might oh, just be man. the
2: exoskeletons.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, no. but it, it's just they're it's like you cannot avoid them. They're yeah. unavoidable. Yeah.
2: Well. They don't eat people or small no. children, right? As no. I understand it. So you don't have to, to hide your son or anything. It's okay. <laughs> no,
1: he's been picking up exoskeletons. <laughs> um no, they're they're essentially harmless. They're just everywhere. Uh, yeah. they're they're like mostly blind. They're stupid. They, their whole thing is to just be so many of them that all of their enemies combined can't kill all of them and then they mate and then go back. Uh, underground. I'm not an entomologist. Don't don't <laughs> yeah. take that. But that's my understanding.
2: Yeah. I guess it'd be a bigger problem if you were farmers or something. If we were living off the land and yeah. we were worried about our crops, that might be a bigger issue. But as it is, it's just background noise when we're recording podcasts, which is also a problem, but not as acute <laughs> yeah. a problem. And I don't think your microphone is picking up the cicada drone right now. No. So I think we're okay there too. But oh, good. Okay. it doesn't seem like a bad life. Just like stay inside, stay underground. Stay out of the light for several years, emerge periodically to eat and die, I guess. It's, it's not that different from my life really.
0: Well they, they sleep they sleep a lot more than you do, Ben.
2: <laughs> That's true. So uh, that part of it is is pretty different. So, Craig, we have you here because we always are happy to have you, but also because it seems like Baseball Prospectus is in the midst of a let's fix baseball theme week, which I don't know if that was planned or if it's just happened that way. And I guess to some extent every week these days is how do we (laughs) fix baseball week. But you've had a number of articles coincide on that theme and you and Patrick Dubuque wrote one and then you followed up on that piece and Russell Carlton wrote one about how changes are necessary so we're going to talk to you about all of that but before we get into it just a, a bit of banter we were recording yesterday tuesday during the whole caps saga so we missed capgate and the caps had like come and gone by the time that i understood what was happening but for anyone who was not extremely online on tuesday mlb's official cap maker new era debuted this line of caps, which was called MLB Local Market. And I don't know what the plan was, whether this was inspired by Nike's MLB City Connect series of jerseys, which seems to have been pretty well-received, but these caps were not well-received. They were the opposite (laughs) of well-received. And I generally don't have opinions about apparel And I don't wear hats. (laughs) So like this was not really my area of expertise, but even I could see That things had gone horribly wrong here. These caps, for anyone who hasn't seen them, and you can't see them anymore on New Era's website because they were pulled within a matter of hours after being mocked mercilessly. But they looked like they were designed by the manager of tchotchkes and office space, (laughs) and they needed a minimum of 37 pieces of flair. And it was like some of them had area codes, and some had too many area codes, and then some had too few area codes, like they were missing the area code that the team played in. There were a lot of tacos. There was (laughs) local food that wasn't really local or just didn't look like the food. There were patches for long ago championships, but not recent championships. They were just incredibly busy and meant to have little logos that symbolize something important to that team but they looked totally terrible and then they were gone within a few hours. And I can't remember a day on baseball Twitter where everyone came together to mock something and then get that thing removed from the internet really since the grand junction Chubbs day, which remains the best day in in baseball Twitter (laughs) history, probably, but not since the grand junction Rockies came out and declared that they would not under any circumstances be named (laughs) the grand junction Chubbs. Have I seen everyone band together to make fun of something and uh, just get it wiped away. So what do you think happened here?
0: So I like ugly hats. Like, I am, I am a famous proponent of ugly hats. I have, until this most recent debacle, never met a Diamondbacks hat I didn't like. Like, <laughs> I have a lot of them, and they're all varying degrees of questionable. And I, I think they're wonderful, and I'm proud to own them. These struck me as designed either by someone who had never been to the United States. Or I wondered if it was like a consulting exercise. So they brought together people who were familiar with each of these markets and their baseball traditions and the food that humans eat there and like their local flora and fauna and which zip codes are relevant to the the given jurisdiction. And then someone was like, we have to. We have to disrupt this and make you all switch teams. And then you will come up with something new and innovative that a person overly familiar with the market would not do. And then that's why you end up with a Cincinnati chili that looks not like any kind of food except maybe dog food. Certainly not like an actual bowl of, of sky chili, which I don't like, but I respect that it exists as a phenomenon in the world and it doesn't look like this when it does. So. That's that's my theory. That it is either someone who has just never been here and was like, "I will do my best," or a lot of people who were quite familiar and then had to watch in horror as uh, as people from a, a different part of the the baseball ecosystem tried their their best to enact this monstrosity on us.
1: Yeah, I saw a lot of people saying it was like a a clip art version of a hat which I think makes a lot of sense, certainly. But I thought it was more of like those patches that people iron onto jean jackets or used to or something like that. It was kind of like that for every hat, but also in the worst way possible. Like, I think those can look good depending on what patches you use and how you style them on your jacket or whatever. But this... I just need to draw attention to because this this drove me crazy about Cincinnati and Philadelphia especially. But like on, on the side of each hat, they would say the city name mm-hmm. and then they would they would put underneath it a nickname for that city for Philadelphia. It just said Philadelphia Philly, which is confusing because they're the Phillies Fam- and famously the Phillies and also famously like a nickname for the city is the, the city of brotherly love which like tampa bay had cigar city i think miami had magic city like they had some of these uh baltimore had charm city right like that's it's that's a a a nickname for it they had some of those but then they also like in chicago instead of windy city it was chi town i didn't understand the approach to any of this (laughs) it's really it's infuriating
2: yeah. It was very much like we read the Wikipedia page about this city <laughs> and we picked out a few little chestnuts and stuck them on a cap. That was kind of the vibe that it gave off to me. And I wonder how it got to the point of being out in the world and, and being actual products. I assumed that these things are sitting in a warehouse somewhere <laughs> and will sit there for all time. But you would have to think that these went through a number of like iterations and design revisions and meetings and planning sessions and the fact that they were savaged so swiftly and just like universal lack of acclaim when these came out in the world I wonder what went on behind the scenes. I'd love a, an oral history of how these caps came yes. to be, or almost came to be, because a lot of people must have thought, "Yeah, these are great. No notes, <laughs> ship them." <laughs> and then they went on Twitter, and everyone hated them, seemingly. And so I, I wonder about that. I almost wondered whether they were designed to like get everyone riled up to get attention. Like sometimes I see. Purported fun facts these days that oh. I really think are just intentionally terrible, and they're just designed to be quote tweeted like a million times by people saying this is the worst fact I've ever seen. Like Sports oh, that's Center, mean. I did that out <laughs> Sports <laughs> Center, yeah, right. Uh, you were referencing one that that made me think that ESPN Stats and Info tweeted according to Elias Sports, Vladimir Grow Jr. is the first son of a five-time All Star to lead MLB outright in home runs at the end of any day in MLB history. The All Star Game began in 1933, and that was like clearly worded so that it was, you know, excluding like Bobby Bonds and Ken Griffey Sr. because they were three-time All Stars, and I don't know who right. was a, a four-time All Star. Maybe the the Boone family or something enters Gosh into Bell this. was a four-time okay. All Star. Okay. So, yeah. So it's clearly like trying to exclude people who would ruin this fun fact so that you could end up with this. And I don't know whether that was intentional, but SportsCenter tweeted something like a couple of weeks ago. Where it said, This is wild. Jason Tatum has scored 50 points three times this season. There's been a no hitter thrown on two of those nights. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Not
0: even all of the nights? No, just two That's of the great. three. And but... it's got,
2: you know, 26,000 likes and 2,000 retweets and 509 quote tweets. And all of them are like, This is the most worthless that I've ever seen. <laughs> and I assumed that was the point. So I thought maybe that was what new era was going for here just like let's make them intentionally terrible and people will wear them ironically or something like uh, i, I kind of wonder like if they just left them on sale after creating this sensation on tuesday whether people would buy them just thinking like I will own the worst hat in history and I will wear it around as like a fashion statement. And I am, you know, mocking this hat as I wear it or I'll buy it because uh, it won't last that long and it'll be a collector's item or something. Cause it's so terrible. They'll never make more. But for now, at least you can't purchase them. So I don't know that that was the plan.
0: In that respect. I appreciate them pulling them because I was not, I did not have enough time to talk myself into buying <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so th- I
2: bought a Grand Junction Chubb shirt and still own it, so yeah.
0: Yeah, so like I appreciate them doing that. Producer Dylan had a theory in the Fangraph Slack that I found compelling, which is that they had some ideas for some of these that they liked and thought were good, and then they realized that they were going to have to do them for the rest of the teams in the league, and then mm. quickly ran out of ideas, which might account for sort of how many tacos and burritos and uh, <laughs> Um, deep dish pizzas—they are because, like, if you look at—I'm here to say a controversial thing. I think the Brewers one is pretty okay.
2: What was on that one? Oh, hold on, here. The Athletic—I
1: would point out to people—if you can't find it—has a a good summary uh, recap of all of them. Yes. And they rotate through the images, so you can see all sides of it. It's a, yes. it's quite helpful.
0: Yes. So if if you take a peek at the Brewers one, the the zip code thing is silly, and I I find I find it especially strange for. Teams that have sort of a broader geographic footprint than just the city, which I guess is true of most baseball teams. But you know, it's like Milwaukee is the Brewers are Milwaukee's team, but they're really Wisconsin's team. Like you could just you could put like Scotty on here and people will be like, Yeah, it's so great. We love Wisconsin because they're really weird about loving Wisconsin in Wisconsin. I can say that because I live there. They're like super proud to be from Wisconsin. So this one makes some amount of sense to me. They have cheese, famous for the cheese. They have beer, famous for the beer. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the benefit of just like good secondary logos. We have talked on this podcast before about how good the the wheat stitching baseball is. So like that's good. Badgers obsessed, obsessed with badgers in the state of Wisconsin. So like this one I think is good and maybe speaks to Dylan's point, which is, you know, they had a couple of ideas and then they were like what color are peaches? I don't know. Just put it on the Braves hat, because like, what peaches are not this color? They're not pink like that. Uh, Have you ever held a peach? It doesn't look like this. I think this. I think this fruit is not well. I think that it is like diseased fruit. So what I would
1: also say about the moment, I I don't think it's a good looking hat. I think it might be the best version of, of this hat. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what I will also say is that it's helped by not only the secondary logos but also that. Cheese and beer are yellow and right. uh, akin to its Milwaukee's yellow already yes. on the hat, and so it's all of a piece. Right, but the, the other part I was going to say that I I really want to hit on is like they call them local markets, but then they treat every team in California as the same. They gave right. them they gave yeah, them the same palm trees, yeah. the <laughs> California bear, and tacos, and <laughs> I just. California's real big, guys. Well, you can't and, treat them all the same.
0: And it's interesting that they treat them all the same, except for San Francisco, which has sushi instead of a taco
2: yeah, or a wh- burrito. Yeah, Okay,
1: that's th- right. Okay, so what?
0: Right. Yeah. As if you can't get good tacos in the Mission, sort of famous for that.
2: I don't know. Even the Milwaukee cap, like I get that the art is appropriate for that one at least, but. And again, I'm not a hat wearer, so I don't necessarily know what people want in their hats, but... Is a regular brewer's cap improved by slapping a wedge of cheese and an area code mm. <laughs> on either side of it? I don't know. Even if, yeah, okay, that is like Milwaukee or like Wisconsin. I still don't know if that's really like the the image that I want to be broadcasting <laughs> to the world as I walk around.
0: I would have left the front two panels unadorned except for the, the normal cap logo, the team logo. And then mm-hmm. if I had been designing this hat, which I clearly did not, although people know I love El Glee, hat so they'd be forgiven for wondering. I would have scooched the cheese and the beer into one panel together. And then I think I think you're in business then. I think that this is a thing that I'd be like, oh, I used to enjoy going to baseball games in Milwaukee when I was a grad student, and this makes me feel nostalgic. So I'm gonna buy this kind of ugly brewer's hat because I was a badger, you know, and I like <laughs> cheese. Who doesn't like cheese, except people who are lactose intolerant or you know don't consume dairy. So there are some people, but not a lot of them live in Wisconsin. So yeah, yeah the potential was here for acceptably ugly, in fact, charmingly ugly hats. But then it <laughs> just got a little too busy. Mm-hmm.
1: Did we figure out why Pittsburgh has zero, no. zero area codes? <laughs> and also just says on the back, Yinzer. It's not, it's not a graphic. It just says Yinzer.
0: yeah what's up with that
1: (laughs) (laughs) extremely and also the front panel is just a a steel beam but like it's not it's also at an angle it's very
0: that i kind of i I think they had to put it at an angle otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't be yeah yeah you wouldn't be able to tell what it was they would be like i i what you what is going on
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) the the kansas city Cap did not include the area code for Kansas City, yeah, Missouri, was, where the Royals is, play. That part is weird. <laughs> Even the team Twitter accounts were like dunking on new era team, here. Yeah, the Kansas City
1: Royals account changed its its bio, I believe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was well done. I, yeah. I appreciated their effort there.
2: So anyway, don't know what the thought process here was, don't know what the rationale was. But thank you, New Era, for yeah. giving us a little levity on a Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> it was
0: a nice that was a nice day. Do you think that mm-hmm. they'll quietly put them back on sale at some point?
2: I kind of do. I kind of think maybe they'll make a few tweaks now that they've crowdsourced, uh, they've market tested this and found it wanting. So you know, maybe they put the Kansas City area code on the Kansas City cap and then they put it on sale. But yeah, so much work must have gone into this, or maybe yeah. no work at all went into this. It's, it's one or the other. It's hard to tell whether too much work went into this or not nearly enough work. I don't know. And again, like it's not that I could necessarily design a, a better cap like whenever i try to make some sort of image it comes out looking like the graphic design is my passion meme so i don't know that i could do better than this but i could have at least said don't do this so i guess that would have been an improvement
0: <sighs> yeah i wonder if the the pirates when they just kind of ran out of steam and they're like eh. just put the steel beam up there it's fine i wonder which of these i'm gonna end up buying when they go back on sale because I will convince myself that they are good. They should have said like Arizona, it's a dry heat. Like <laughs> State, come yeah. on. Or like, you know, had a had a wayward sprinkler head that is blasting water onto the sidewalk at four in the afternoon. This is this is becoming my passion. I want to write letters to people being like, this is not the optimal time to water your lawn. It's like to evaporate. <laughs>
2: Well, we should probably get to fixing baseball. Oh, but sure, Craig. I I want to ask you one other thing. Can I ask you to explain Adolis Garcia to me? Because uh, <laughs> you just wrote about him on Wednesday in Box Score Banter at BP, and you wrote about him a couple of weeks ago, and. I've now decided that I need to know who this person is and uh, why he is playing so well. For a little while there, it was, uh, you know, if you wait long enough, maybe the small sample fluke stops happening and then you you don't have to know anymore. But now it, it's looking like we might need to explain and understand this. And just watching Shohei Otani on Tuesday, he hit his 15th homer. And in the same game, Adolis Garcia of the Rangers hit his 15th homer. And their offensive stats, their slash lines and WRC pluses are like almost perfect matches for each other, Otani and Garcia. And of course Garcia does not pitch, but still, if we are all salivating over Otani's offense, then we should also salivate over Adolis Garcia's offense. And that kind of came out of nowhere. So who is Adelis Garcia and is he this good?
1: Yeah, I mean, I want to be clear that I am not an Adelis Garcia expert or anything like that, but he's he's been interesting to me for, for a bit. And I still th- kind of think he is someone who, if you wait out the larger sample it's not necessarily going to look like this over time. I think, you know, a sub 5% walk rate is, is hard to be sustainably this good, but his, his power when he does make contact is extremely real. And so the home runs, I think, if he's in a run of a, you know, part of a season where he's making a lot of contact, 15 home runs is, is still real. You know, so much as like what happened over that sample is real. It's whether it's, it's going to continue going forward. When I first looked at him, his strikeout rate was, I think, 32 percent or somewhere in that range and it just that level of strikeout to walk ratio is always concerning to me now he's brought it under 30 percent he's he's actually under 28 percent which seems much more plausible in terms of uh or you know like it's it's an acceptable trade-off for the amount of power he brings which is uh a 613 slug right now um (laughs) (laughs) which it's it's absolutely nuts i mean he's he's got a longish swing and so to me I think that's going to be high maintenance I suspect there are going to be times when he has again another like run of play where it's just a, ne- a bad streak as opposed to a really good one. But that doesn't mean on balance he won't be really good. And he's extremely good defensively with a really strong arm. For for background, he's 28 years old, uh, but yeah. he's a
2: rookie this year. He's like the new Randy Rosarena in a way. <laughs> yeah, because he, ca- he, he came he's out of St. Louis. Yeah. Right, from Cuba, signed by the Cardinals, played like 20 games for the Cardinals, and then left the Cardinals, was kind of given away. I guess in his case he was uh, purchased Is the the technical transaction type. So just some exchange of cash uh, in December 2019 and played a few games for the Rangers last year and certainly was not on my radar, but has certainly put himself on it this season.
1: Yeah. I think in the first piece, I linked to a Jamie Newberg piece from The Athletic where he talked about him reworking his swing a little bit with with the Rangers. Uh, whereas I think Arena had started to overhaul his with the Cardinals. So I don't I don't know that this should be on the Cardinals, and I think it's also important to remember that the Rangers put him through waivers in February. So I don't know that they knew they had something. He didn't break camp with the team or anything like that. He was added after, I think Ronald Guzman uh, had a knee injury. So I don't think that they necessarily knew what they had with him, but he also did receive a fairly big bonus when he signed with St. Louis out of Cuba. So I don't know that it's entirely a surprise in terms of, you know, kind of an intrinsic talent level, if you want to think of it like that. I think People thought he was interesting and just hadn't quite put it together. He'd always hit for power, but always walked too little and struck out too much. And he's kind of, he's still walking too little, I suppose, but the higher contact rate or the lower he's able to push that strikeout rate, the more he's able to access his power.
0: I like that you get in a roserena do over, Craig. I felt like it was coming for you for, I, for a while. I want time. Well, yeah,
1: I, See, I was gonna say don't listen to me on Q on, on, you know, Cuban signees from the Cardinals who go to another team. <laughs> uh definitely should not be the expert on that.
0: I also love that he, you know, there's there's like if you took his performance in a vacuum it would be exciting no matter what but he's also had these like very clutch moments in games so huge yeah you know so there's that part of it too it's like the performance on its own would be the kind of thing where if you were you know clicking through um you know the ranger's depth chart and you're like wait a minute what's going on with this guy i haven't you know really thought about him before i know that he you know has been moved around and passed through waivers and all sorts of stuff but then you add the the sort of timing of some of his big hits, and you're like, "Wow, good for you, man! This is great."
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is he's he's super fun. I mean, he's got. Yeah. Uh, I think he captures a lot of uh, people's hearts because he he has a lot of spirit. Like he, he's just he is he's been clutch. He's uh, had two straight walk offs. Yep. Um, uh, the the last weekend, I think one was essentially a fielder's choice, but you know, again, it's it's a walk off, and it it matters. And he's just, I think, he plays with a lot of flair. And it's it's all really fun. And I think that people in, in Texas have kind of attached themselves to him, and understandably so.
2: Well, it's been a lot of fun to watch him, and the only other bit of news I wanted to react to— Was something related to another AL outfielder, Byron Buxton, and Mm -hmm. Dan Hayes, who covers the Twins for the Athletic, tweeted on Wednesday, Byron Buxton is still having trouble decelerating when running, which appears to be slowing his rehab down, won't immediately go on a rehab assignment. So I hate that Buxton is hurt. But I enjoyed this injury update, both that being unable to slow down is slowing him down, yeah. but also <laughs> that his problem is decelerating, which is like the opposite of uh, the problem for most of us, I right. think, who have trouble accelerating. And if you've seen Byron Buxton run, then you could understand why it would be hard for him to stop running because he runs really fast. And I understand that different uh, muscles and parts of the body are involved there. So it is possible to get up to a certain speed and then maybe not be able to slow down from that speed, although I guess uh, friction and and other forces would eventually take care of that problem. But really, like he is so fast that he cannot slow down. And that is why he is not on the twins right now. I'm, I'm not interrogating that diagnosis any further. So it seemed incredibly appropriate that that would be the thing holding him back. And also in one of those weird, fluky baseball things, He is not currently being missed by Minnesota all that much because Rob (laughs) Refsnyder, Rob Refsnyder, who the Twins uh, are playing in lieu of Buxton, has played 11 games for them, 36 plate appearances, and he is hitting 438, 472, 719. That is a 236 OPS plus. And obviously that is not his true talent level, but I do enjoy when like you're missing a superstar and you plug in some scrub. (laughs) No offense to Rob. Snyder, although that probably is offensive to him. But, you know, he was signed in November as a a free agent with them and was not expected to play a significant role, really. He was kind of depth and and backup and here he is stepping in for Buxton and hitting better than Buxton was. And that's the kind of thing where, if you're the twins and a lot of things have gone wrong for you this year, you kind of need the Rob Snyders of the world to snap up and give you otherworldly production for a couple weeks while you're waiting for Byron Buxton to be able to slow down again
0: surely a sentence that twins fans expected to hear uttered about them at the beginning <laughs> of this sh- you just need the rap snyders of the world to step up yep. for you and that's what you need
1: <laughs> two things one is that a lot of yankee fans are saying i told you so on Rob Reiner right now, uh, <laughs> but the other was I had not heard about his inability to decelerate, <laughs> so this yeah. is exciting for me. Uh, and I immediately thought of uh, Luis Mendoza from D Two: The Mighty Ducks. I don't know if anyone <laughs> is familiar with that, but he he was extremely fast, but could not stop on skates. Uh-huh. That was his yeah. whole storyline. So yeah, I I think we have you know we have precedent for this.
2: Yeah. Or he could just be like vroom, vroom guy. Yeah, from the he's famous a... effectively wild hypothetical. And if he never needs to stop, then this won't be a problem for him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So fixing baseball. Why are we having this conversation? I suppose before we get into your specific proposals for fixing baseball, we should talk a bit about why or whether baseball needs to be fixed. So let's pretend this is the the scout scene from Moneyball and I'm (laughs) Billy Bean sitting at the head of the table and you're talking about uh, oh, we need to move the mound back and oh, we need to limit the number of pitchers on the roster or whatever and then I just bang my fist on the desk and I say, what's the problem? So what is the problem that we're trying to address here?
1: So I think it boils down to the run environment and how we get the runs that we have. Uh, Because I think if you look at the 2021 run environment, I think the last time I looked, it was 4.3 something, which is not so bad, but is a substantial drop off from the last few years prior, which I think we're closer in the 4.6 to 4.7 range. But I think the way that we get there is kind of ripe for that number to collapse because it's been largely reliant on home runs and we've had a change to the ball and home runs are down this year. And I think it, it has the potential to drop further. And I think there are a few causes uh, for this. And I've been influenced by, I, I've read a, a lot of different articles at, at fan graphs, obviously at BP I've read. I think I've probably been most influenced uh, by, by Joe Sheehan's strident on, pitchers being too good and I've I think he's made a compelling case and that it's not just it's not just like again the intrinsic talent of pitchers it's the way that teams have gone about using them and one thing that I had anecdotally noticed that I think kind of pushed this article forward when I was talking about it with Patrick who who Dubuque who wrote it with me was that relief pitchers are being used less not less than ever but if you go back to 2001, it's at its, it's by far at its lowest point in terms of, of having them rest and, and not come into games. And glaring instance of this to me was in the Dodgers Padres series that everyone kind of, and, and I felt this way too. It felt like a playoff environment in, in mid to late April, right? And then all of a sudden in a, a one run game or a tie game, you were seeing the Padres down a run, bring in like Nabil Krismat or the Dodgers bring in Scott Alexander and Dennis Santana. And these are not... So so first of all, obviously, it's April. And I think it was one way for managers to show, like, we're considering this April and not September. It's not that big a deal, despite the atmosphere. Right. But I think it's also evidence of... The fact that teams just aren't going to go to guys and push them back to back. It was down significantly in 20, 2019 as well, and it's dropped even further this year through about mid May. It was almost 15% in, in prior years. If you go back to 2007 at its high point, it was approaching 21% in terms of how many times a pitcher had been used back, a relief pitcher had been used back to back in games through, through that point in mid May. So I I just kind of rambled a lot, but that ability to be a rested reliever and throw max effort and the increase in velocity that we've seen, the, the sharpness of breaking stuff, things like that, I think plays into why hitters are struggling so much these days.
2: And do you think that we are being a bunch of fuss budgets about this? Because uh, obviously we talk about this a lot too, and we generally agree with you and Joe about that. And we talked about that last week about how we think the root cause is that the pitchers are too good. But it's kind of a weird dynamic where – on the one hand, we are in the group that is not going to lose interest in baseball, no matter how high the strikeout rate is, realistically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, you know, some part of our jobs for one thing, but also it's something that we care about a lot. So, like, you know, we're hooked. On the other hand, we obsess over this stuff probably more than most people who in theory might actually like stop watching baseball because of this or be turned off. By this, like we're kind of trying to put ourselves in the shoes of like the casual fan or or people who maybe are not fans yet, but potentially could be. And are they going to be turned off by this more static game and less contact and less fielding and less base running and just less action, at least by a certain definition? So. On the one hand, we're like less susceptible to losing interest in baseball, but we're so hyper focused on this that maybe we're just paying attention to it more than the average fan or blowing it out of proportion. So are our brains broken by this or is this actually an issue and not just one that we keep chewing over because it's content?
1: I think a little bit of uh, yes to all of that. I do think We can't really put ourselves in in the shoes of a casual viewer in terms of how to to understand what this means, because we're, you know, our saturation point is is way in the rearview mirror. Right. We, I, I mean, mine is right. I watch I put on a game pretty much no matter what I'm doing. Like you said, I'm I'm hooked. But I do think we've seen we've seen reporters talk to to more casual fans or, or people that tune into this on a, a less serious basis, express concerns about kind of the the pace of things, which certainly when I when I talk about max effort pitches, there's also the amount of time between pitches that a guy takes to build back up after throwing so hard. I know, Eno know, Saris has looked into that. And, you know, there, there are a few different avenues at which to approach it. While I do think maybe we're being a little bit fussy. I also think that there is a a broader problem and that people do find the pace of the game to be an issue that there isn't a lot of action. I think I would say we we were more the problem if home runs weren't also dropping off. People right. the, the you know the reality is that people like home runs and if you want to go back to the 2017, 18, 19 somewhere in that mix of of whatever the ball was, I know it was changing a lot, but anything in that range uh, where home runs kind of papered over the dominance of of pitching and defense right now, I, I think I think most casual viewers would would probably accept that trade off. I, I think when you get into deadening the ball as a way to try to get hitters to change their approach, and and that's basically what we've got in twenty twenty one. I think it actually becomes more of a real problem all the way through, and not and not just for those of us who uh, are oversaturated with the sport
0: kind of related question i guess which is and i know that some of the the rule changes that you proposed in your piece are perhaps slightly more serious than others right
1: Oh, some were extremely silly.
0: But I wonder how you you think about kind of balancing that. Not that you are going to be responsible for sort of changing the direction of the sport all on your own, although, you know, that would be great entertainment. (laughs) But when we're thinking about it, you know, as people who are super invested and do observe the sport on a daily basis and sort of have to have considered opinions about its direction and what might be done to help course correct where we think things have gotten slightly or perhaps profoundly out of whack. I wonder how you think about the balancing sort of the stuff that is a bit more silly and would result in, you know, a more casual and entertaining aesthetic, but might also strike some like traditionalists as being particularly troublesome because it is at its core goofy right these are goofier suggestions versus more serious stuff because i think that there's room for both of those things and i i often wonder to your point like how silly are the silly suggestions really do they strike me as silly because i also think about like fastball spin rate or are they just like kind of silly and a person watching them will be like well that's fun you know so i wonder how you think about that because i i think that there's You know, we have a couple of of issues that we have to sort out before we even get to fixing the game. And a lot of that has to do with agreeing on common problems, right? Which gets to Ben's question, but also sort of approach in terms of what we're trying to prioritize in the game. Is it action? Is it a particular aesthetic? Those are related concerns, but they're not entirely the same. You know, Mm -hmm. is it some amount of, of levity and fun? Is it, you know incredible dominance like what are we trying to prioritize and I I wonder how you think about that
1: yeah I think I get to this a, a little bit at the end of of the piece suggesting additional rule changes uh where I, I discuss people who suggest one way to put a restrictor plate on pitching, which is how we framed our first article, is to essentially penalize some number of pitches over a certain velocity and I don't like that approach, and I understand why it appeals to people and that it is a a very direct solution to the problem that i've I've stated is a problem, but I think the problem with that I have with it uh with this solution is I want these players to be competing at at their i want them to be trying their hardest in any given moment, um, Mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean max effort. I want them like if we change the policies around the game at an upstream point so that the best thing that a pitcher can do is not necessarily throw at 100 percent effort, but perhaps 90 because they might be needed the next day or they might be needed another inning or something like that. I want them competing at their highest point. So if you then say, let's say. 95 miles per hour is is the line of demarcation and if it's over that it's a ball. Well, I I don't want guys to be scaling back that hard and I don't want it to be that easy for for our hitters. I think when we see great athletic achievements, it's because uh the other side is also attempting to to be great. And if you can't even attempt to be great, then I personally would lose interest as an entertainment thing. But I also think like that's that's where the sport should go is with with people trying their hardest. And if someone can throw harder than 95 miles per hour, I think they should be able to. I just think that we can make it hard for them to do it all the time. Uh, If that if that makes sense. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I agree with you, because it it can be pretty exciting to see someone light up a radar gun or light up stat cast on a pitch by pitch basis. Like, you know, it's pretty exciting to see, oh, Hunter Green was clocked at 103 or whatever. And I, I wouldn't want that to entirely go away. You know, if someone is able to throw that hard. I think it's cool from time to time. It's just when everyone is throwing incredibly hard, A, it's a little less exciting, but also there are all of these byproducts of that that maybe are not so desirable and are not so exciting. So I pretty much uh, agree with your position here, and I'm kind of you know playing devil's advocate, (laughs) asking if, if we're all being too fussy about this. But I think when we talk about the three true outcomes, we're mostly talking about one outcome in particular i think we're mostly talking about the strikeouts like walks are not really out of line with historical norms and and no one gets uh, all that upset about walks really and home runs yeah we we're, we're at an all-time record rate at least recently and we're still pretty darn close to that rate right now but i think you know at least home runs are action and a lot of people like home runs and so i think the the big problem with the game as we tend to discuss it is strikeouts and that's kind of been the constant and throughout the entire time that certainly the three of us have been covering the game in any kind of professional capacity, strikeouts have been rising and other things ebb and flow and, you know, come and go and strikeouts just climb and climb and climb. So you mentioned the restrictor plate analogy, which was kind of the conceit for your piece with Patrick. For the non NASCAR fans <laughs> among us, can you explain what that means exactly?
0: I didn't need it explained because I'm famously a huge NASCAR fan. <laughs> like I'm just all about those NASCARs, the, the NASCARs about them.
1: So yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, much of a racing person, either, although I feel like uh f one is like seeping its way into into baseball twitter in in a certain capacity but i i don 't really know a ton about racing and uh, apparently neither does patrick i thought I thought he did because this this was his kind of analogy, but I loved the analogy because i knew I knew enough that. You know, he explains it in the piece, but there there was an issue with with essentially a, a safety issue with cars going too fast. And NASCAR's uh, reaction to that was that they installed restrictor plates, uh, which were a one eighth uh, inch thick metal uh designed to limit airflow into the engine and reduce top speeds. They're not in use anymore. Uh They they use there is a different type of mechanism, not a restrictor plate, but it does cap top end speed and that's essentially where that analogy came from and when patrick said that it just kind of clicked in my head i thought it was just a really good way to get at what we're trying to t- what we're trying to talk about and what we're trying to do with the suggestions that we had in that piece which was essentially cap pitcher roster spots to 12. I've i I've heard from a few people that 12 was too, too high. It should actually be 11, um, which I know when I, when I was growing up watching baseball, most pitching staffs were about 11 pitchers, 10, some 10 or 11 and 12 was considered a lot. Um, now we're at 13 and 14 in a lot of, uh, in a lot of organizations. And so the, the idea was, you know, that if someone, and this wouldn't be the only change, but I think this would be, Kind of the upstream policy change which is that if if you are if you need to be available the next day which as i was pointing out with relief pitcher usage and you're not that then you might you might approach how hard you throw a little bit differently um if if you're required to be available or if you're required to eat an inning because another guy isn't available and that goes for starters too it would it would all of a sudden Place more of an emphasis on starters who could take that extra inning and not require someone else to use it, and it would still leave, ha- you know, how teams stocked those spots open to them. But it, I think it would, in a in a subtle way, apply pressure in the direction that we want it. And if guys weren't throwing max effort, I think hitters would would have more of a chance at the plate.
0: Yeah, I think that it's an elegant solution to a problem that kind of has at least recently lent itself to more clunky suggestions because I don't want I don't want the the balance to shift too far in the other direction, right? Like I think that what mm-hmm. we're the sort of point that we're trying to navigate around is a perfectly balanced scale if we if we can manage it. And there are going to be days where, you know, just by natural variation in a hitter's performance or a pitcher's where it's going to tip slightly one way or the other, but you're trying to establish some kind of equilibrium. Although maybe if you do that, then it becomes just wildly boring because everyone's sort of on an equal playing field. But I think you want there to be um, a more consistent back and forth and volley between both sides so that you're not experiencing an endless rise in strikeout rates. And then we get to a point where it's just like really no fun to watch at all. But I want to see guys throw 100. So you have to have some kind of solution that allows for both. And so I like this, even though I don't understand racing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, and I I also wanted to touch on, you know, Ben said that it was kind of the one outcome of the three true outcomes that's the problem. But I also think it's. It's it's a number of things too, and I, and this restrictor plate idea doesn't address all of them. But I think I think it's important that everyone kind of understand and agree on what the problems are, which which Ben mentioned too. But I I think an overlooked one is how defense has changed, right? And how much better it's gotten, and that the places that that guys used to hit the ball on the field and get base hits aren't base hits anymore. And that's, you know, we, we measure that a lot with Babbitt, but we look at like the homer rate and say, that's okay. We look at, at certain metrics and, and compare them to the past. But it's, it's one thing to put it all on the hitters or pitchers. But when hitters are getting to the ball, you know, and, and not striking out their ability to get on base is lower than it has been ever before or, or, or in quite a long time, I should say. And that's going to inform their approach at the plate. And that is, right, it's all a feedback loop right. on how hitter approach. I, I go back to, and I think it was Max Scherzer said this a few years ago, but basically like you can't string rely on stringing together hits against pitchers to score runs anymore. Right. That's why guys are swinging. So yeah, it, it certainly is. There's culpability on the hitter side, but it also makes the most sense that if you can't, if guys are striking out, so much that you can't rely on three, four hits in an inning or you know, a walk in three hits or whatever to push a run across the plate, then of course you need to swing for the fences because that's how you get runs. And so when the ball is in in play and not a home run, the reward isn't there for them. So it's natural that they're going to change their approach. It's It's not that they're against singles or doubles or anything like that. But it's a logical reaction to the situation they face that they're up against in terms of both pitchers who are exceedingly good at missing bats and then defenses that are really good at converting those balls into outs when they're not missing bats.
2: Yeah, it would be easier if we could just install restrictor plates on (laughs) pitchers, but they're not machines, so we can't really do that. And. Their bodies are sort of machines in a way and they do have fine control over them. And we have gotten listener emails and I believe answered listener emails about, well, what if you did just impose some velocity limit and you said, well, you can't throw over 90, whatever, or you can only throw this number of pitches over 90, whatever. And it just seems like an inelegant solution like you. I think it's not great to ask players to play at less than full capacity to you know intentionally restrict themselves I think it would be much better if we could kind of organically induce them to do that by putting rules in place that just you know require them to to pace themselves to some degree so I agree that that's much more preferable like you know above and beyond like well how feasible is it can pitchers tell exactly how hard they're throwing you know are they throwing 95.1 or are they throwing 94.9 or, or right. whatever and and what would the penalties be like there're a whole host of complications that would come with that kind of thing but also you're just like putting the onus on the pitchers themselves to pitch worse <laughs> and something about that just just seems wrong and and backward to me.
0: Well, and I think you also we want to be mindful of like how much <laughs> For lack of a better way of describing this, like how many more committee meetings do we want to introduce to a given baseball game? Right. Like if you (laughs) it's going to be hard for a guy who is used to throwing a particular way to suddenly regulate down on a consistent basis. And there are going to be times where he's like, well, I was meaning to throw 94, but I accidentally threw 96. And then you have to have some kind of break for there to be enforcement in the course of the game. And so, like how much of that do we really want? <laughs> Cuz we already slow stuff down from a from a sort of necessary procedure point enough. It's like if if what you want is to have guys throwing a little less hard like, you know, Enforce the pitch clock, maybe, and right. make, them, make them take a little break between pitches. Not too long of a break, right? There's a balance to be structured <laughs> too, but like make them take a little break because then it's a little bit harder. I don't know. Like, you know, there's there's stuff like that that you could do, but I, I think we need to be careful about layering more confabs into (laughs) our experience of baseball because no one likes that part like we we allow for it because it's necessary as we've talked about in the course of discussing replay like we have to have some mechanism by which You correct obvious wrongs on the field as they're happening because we can see them on TV now and we can spot them and know they're there. But I think that we should be mindful of like how much the rules that we introduce in any given year depend on sort of in the moment on field enforcement, because if they do, then people are going to use them and then they're going to slow the game down even more. You know, does that make Mm -hmm. sense?
2: Yeah, so one idea you bring up is just installing pitch clocks at the major league level, which uh, to me seems like a, a great and obvious solution. We've already had them at the minor league level for a while now. It seemed to go totally fine. and They're seamless. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and like, it's You don't it's even so, notice. I, I absolutely yeah. want them. <laughs> yes, me too. And the whole, like, romantic notion of, you know, there are no clocks in baseball and all of that. I get that, but- Also, like there's already a rule on the books about how long you can take between pitches. It's just not enforced. And this would have multiple positive effects potentially, in that it would keep the game moving faster and ending sooner without any terrible Manfred ball artificial constructs. But Also, presumably, you would encourage pitchers to throw less hard. And I know there is a school of thought that says this would endanger pitchers, right, because you would give them less recovery time and everyone is throwing max effort. And so if you give them less time to recover, and and Rob Arthur has shown that when pitchers take more time between pitches, they do throw harder, which, I mean, it makes sense. You get more recovery time and you can really charge up. But I know that your response to that, and I think it's a sensible one, is, well, then don't throw max effort. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I slow down. If yeah. you
1: offer someone a choice between throwing max effort and, and hurting themselves and throwing less max effort and not hurting themselves, I think, you know, I hope they can make a sensible choice. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you're talking about, I don't think you're talking about three miles per hour between you know, it's it's not that substantial a change, but it, it's enough that it might make a difference. And yeah, I I think there's a potential for these guys to get hurt, but I think throwing max effort every single pitch also leaves potential to get hurt. So
0: mm-hmm. well, and I I mean, it seems like the sort of thing that we could put some kind of study around. Like we have pitch clocks in the minors. Is the Tommy John rate higher among minor league pitchers in a substantial right. way than it is among big league pitchers? I don't actually know the answer to that but i don't think so so if we have a an environment where pitchers are already operating under that constraint we can get some kind of an idea of what it would look like at the big league level i mean we test everything else so Mm -hmm. it seems like we could kind of put a put a number to that and there's going to be some acceptable risk tolerance that we allow for this is always the balance that we're striking right between keeping things moving and keeping guys safe and you know it doesn't seem like it's so substantial a risk as the pitch clock is currently constituted that we'd be irresponsible, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: Or you could do studies of like minor league pitcher injury rates before and after the pitch clock was put right. in place or, or what happens to pitchers when they go back and forth between levels that do and don't have right. the pitch clock. Do they get hurt more at a certain level? Do they throw harder or less hard at a certain level? So yeah, I would think that you could test that sort of thing, but it makes sense to me on a lot of levels.
0: Craig, what do you think about how we ought to sequence multiple changes at once? And you you touch on this some in your in your piece that you wrote with additional rule changes that, you know, these things interact with one another. So it isn't as if, you know, if you introduce multiple changes at once, the effect of any one might end up being both less significant than you anticipate and potentially operate in a slightly different way than you were anticipating. So how do you think about that part?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think I I'm I maybe a little bit hypocritical on this because I, I think one thing that I was hard on MLB in terms of how they've tested some changes in the past was when they tested about, I don't know, it felt like five or six different changes in the Atlantic League in 2019. I was like, well, how are you going to tell, you know, the impact of one from the other, right? right. How are you going to draw any signal from, you know, you don't know, know which one kind of had which effect. Um, so I think when we're, Testing these uh, they need to be done kind of on their own, but I, I think when you're implementing them at the major league level It's it's going to require doing more than one thing at a time and I think we're kind of living that out in in the ball change and what they, what they did in terms of it increases exit velocity, you know, off the bat, but it also, the ball doesn't carry quite as far. That seemed to be part of what they wanted to happen from what Rob and I think Meredith and other people have, have done who studied these changes. Uh, that seems to be what's actually happening, but without other changes we're, we're left with a, a an offensive environment that's significantly different than the one we had before and the the missing you know I've seen some people say like the missing piece here is home runs but okay but they seem to be missing so what are we going to do about it Right. right so the question is like the first change I suggest in, in the additional rule changes and this is not in any order but it's just the first one that we started with was making gloves smaller in the field right and it's it's kind of a silly change this was when you were talking about uh, silliness versus seriousness like this is something I think Patrick and I have talked about a lot cuz I've been pretty resistant to it but the I, the idea has grown on me which is that if we have a problem with defenses being too good and hits turning into, you know, what were hits now being out, uh, this is a pretty direct way to solve that problem. And if you are taking away home runs and want more balls in play that also go for hits, um, you need to to make that also part happen. Because as we just discussed, part of the problem is all of these balls in play becoming outs rather than doubles, which is, I think, the idea that people have when you take home
2: runs away. Yeah, I I think that makes some sense. I I think what you were saying about the Atlantic League and the concurrent changes – is something that I mentioned at the time too. And I think one of the advantages of the way MLP is doing it this year is that, you know, it's taking advantage of the fact that it basically took total control of the minor leagues and is leveraging that to just test, you know, one or or maybe one or two changes per minor league level. And because there are so many different levels that can be laboratories now for MLP at the same time. They can run these sort of independent experiments instead of stacking them all at the same place at the same time. So I think that can be beneficial. But also I think some of the changes that they have chosen to test are kind of like identifying one aspect of the way the game is trending, but like trying to treat it in isolation almost yeah. without like yeah. considering the the holistic effects like I'm fine with the bigger and better bases like that that seems uh, <laughs> like an improvement, but also it it doesn't seem like it's gonna make any big impact on the running game and then you know the the pickoff attempt changes and the pickoff rule changes that have turned minor league games into track meets at you know eight ball where those changes are being tested like maybe that's going a little bit too far, and it's yeah. just like. It's not necessarily that we need the base pass to be shorter or no one to right. be able to do pickoff moves. It's like, you know, just maybe having more base runners <laughs> would be a good thing. And that's something that could be accomplished through other changes that would also address these other issues. It's like, yeah, we could try to restrict the shift and maybe potentially that would lead to a few more base hits here or there or we could change rules so that you might get more stolen bases but ultimately if the problem is that pitchers are too good and that's kind of the the core issue that's causing all of these other issues then if we could do something to address that and reduce the strikeouts then you'd get more balls in play and presumably more base runners and you'd make it more worthwhile for a runner on first to take second because there'd be a better chance of a run scoring single and you'd just get more more action that way without targeting symptoms of the real yes. problem instead of the cause. That that's kind of the way that I think about it. Like these yeah. these these might help, but it also seems like it's picking around the edges of the problem a little bit, and that we should just address the problem. You know, which presupposes that everyone agrees on what the problem is and how to fix it, which is obviously not the case. But we agree more or less on this podcast, and so that's all that matters. But <laughs> really, I think that. The restrictor plate idea is a, a helpful one. And so whether it is the pitch clock or the other potential solutions that you mentioned in that article, like just limiting pitcher usage, either the number of pitchers you can have on the roster, the number of pitchers you can use in the game, et cetera, like all of that makes sense to me. And I'm more willing to intervene in those areas than I once would have been. And I think that a lot of people still are. And I was listening to the last episode of Eight's podcast, Hot Takedown, which uh, is good. And I was enjoying it. And it's hosted by Sarah Ziegler, who's really good. And she's been on the show, but she was saying, you know, she doesn't want the league to step in and make these changes because she's kind of philosophically against like, the league intervening and she wants the players to sort these things out themselves and someone counters and someone counters that counter and it goes back and forth and she said it's a a pendulum and sometimes it swings toward hitters and sometimes it swings toward pitchers and I think that is just fundamentally a mirage. I I think (laughs) that's like a a common perception and and maybe one that I held at times but I think when it comes to strikeouts at least there's no pendulum. It's not swinging. (laughs) It's It's on one side. Like And not just recently, but throughout baseball history, really, the strikeout rate has been climbing more or less since they started throwing pitches and they, you know, stopped throwing them exactly where the batter wanted to throw them and throwing them underhand, etc. It's just been climbing slowly and steadily or recently quickly and steadily and not just in the majors, but in the minors and college baseball at all levels. The only way that it has really swung back in the other direction is when the league has stepped in or conditions yeah. have changed to actually swing that pendulum back forcibly. So I I don't think It's something that is just going to fix itself, and it seems like it's a vicious circle, and it's just going to be a a self-reinforcing process because it has always been beneficial for pitchers not to allow the ball to be put into play. That has always kind of been the best outcome for pitchers, whether they knew it or not, and now they know it, and there are all of these other forces that we've touched on here and on other episodes that are contributing to pitchers getting better at missing bats, but – That is kind of the best thing you could do. If you're a pitcher and that's not going to change. So I think that you need to restrict their ability to miss bats in in these ways that we're talking about. And a lot of that goes for home runs too, because hey, home runs are valuable and hitters have realized that. And the home run rate has climbed over the long term too, with various fluctuations largely related to the ball. And I should say that one thing that does encourage me a little bit is that a lot of the difference in offense relative to last season comes from pitchers hitting. I mentioned this in my piece about no hitters last week. that if you take out pitcher hitting the strikeout rate is not really that different from last season and mike petriello has subsequently written about that and dan Symborski was tweeting about it too so if you just compare non-pitchers to non-pitchers 2021 so far to last season which is maybe a little misleading just because last season was warm weather if you strip out the pitcher hitting this year then the increase in k rate goes from 0.7 percentage points to only 0.1 the babbitt decline goes from three points to two Points, the batting average decline goes from eight points to five points obp goes from nine points to five points so it's still down a bit but it's also early in the year and the declines just aren't as extreme and that's good news because probably pitcher hitting won't happen next year and so you could expect to get some sort of boost from that but obviously these are long-term trends so it's not just a one-year dip still slightly heartening that the decline among real hitters is not quite as pronounced in this season alone as maybe people have been making it out to be
0: when I was talking earlier about a pitch clock did I make it sound like I thought that more time between pitches leads to less velocity because that's not what I meant to say I worry that I said that I spent 20 minutes last night thinking that there were only 120 games in a major league season don't know where that brain fart came from but it persisted for almost a whole half hour so anyway for our listeners who are like what's going on with Meg's brain
2: <laughs>
0: would that we could find the answer friends would yeah. that we could find it
2: so, Craig, what else you got? You mentioned uh, smaller gloves, but you you listed several other ideas in your second article here, and some of them we've touched on here sometimes at length, like uh, moving the mound back and banning the shift and and such. But you've you've had some other ideas that you walked through here.
1: Yeah, I think some of this was just what I've seen. I I think one of the more obvious ones to me that won't. Happen is some combination of bigger outfield's and taller walls, which I I think like the I, I mean I think it could get to a point that it's silly like if every team just has huge very high walls. But if you want to convert home runs into things that are not home runs but also not outs, you need to have like the the wall makes those doubles, right? Those things that would have been home runs tend to be doubles if they hit high enough up the wall. And so I think that's, that's one way to do it. I think chorus has shown us, obviously there's a difference in the air there, but. If you have a huge outfield, and and this is true of uh, Kauffman Stadium, too, like the, yeah. their single, double and triple rates are are significantly above the rest of the league and their homer rates are below. If you have a big outfield, if you just change the amount of space that someone has to cover, it makes, you know, BABIP goes up. So I, I think those are are direct solutions that also present problems in terms of. Teams are not going to give up the seats that those changes affect and also just moving, you know, the amount of construction and changes to happen in every park across the league, which kind of I I just don't see that would uh, how that would happen. But another one, I've seen people express a preference for a smaller strike zone. I don't particularly like this because I think it requires pitchers to be as good as within the strike zone or better than they are now, which would mean that they'd want to throw as hard as possible. And I I don't know if that's a fair counter to the idea of a smaller strike zone, but obviously it would make hitters very good. I, I, one thing that I, I hadn't known that I'll, I'll reference from Joe Sheehan's uh, piece, which I included in this was that when, when everyone talks about, you know, 1968 to 1969, they mentioned lowering the mound, but I, I didn't realize they also dramatically changed the definition of the strike zone, yeah. which they
2: had changed in 1963. And there was expansion that season too for new teams, right. which helped also. So
1: yeah. yeah, and I honestly I think expansion is probably inevitable. And there's a lot of reasons uh the league should I, I didn't put that in here, but like I, I think the league should consider it. I'm sure they want the revenues from franchise fees if if that, you know, coming off of the shortened season and partial attendance thus far this season. And it's good for players. Obviously there are more jobs. So I understand the appeal of it. um, And, and I just, I had always in my mind uh, thought that that was the, the change was from the mound and and hadn't kind of realized how big an impact the strike zone made. But I certainly understand that, but I I don't know that it solves our issue with pit. It certainly makes them worse in some capacity, but I don't, I, I still think there would be a lot of strikeouts, a lot of chase pitches. And I think, you know, you said, again, going back to what you said before about the one issue being strikeouts, I think we might have an issue with walks then.
2: Mm-hmm. If a yeah. if a
1: hitter can cover the entire zone and almost all of it with the barrel uh, and not just the end of the bat and that kind of thing, I think they're, they're just a smaller zone means more walks. And I don't know if that addresses the aesthetic concerns that we have.
0: Well, it, it certainly causes us to think more about, you know, we, we had this shift where we we're like, you just got to get on base. like The important thing is you get on base if you do a VR walk, that's fine. it is It does make us think about the aesthetic side of that more, which is if we were to shrink the zone so you have a higher walk rate, let's assume that that's one of the effects of doing that. And then you also make other changes to the way that the field is constituted that we think will encourage more base stealing. Do we care? aesthetically is that an aesthetic trade-off that we find compelling because it's like yeah watching a bunch of guys walk you know maybe that's not everyone's favorite thing but if they're more likely to attempt to steal a base once they get on base perhaps that's a trade-off that we find worthwhile because we have diminished action at the beginning of their (laughs) offensive (laughs) performance but then we have increased action on the back end and we find that stuff really exciting so I don't know what my answer to that question is, but I like it as a thing that we need to talk about because I think we say action... And we don't really ever talk about what kinds of action we're excited about and what sort of stuff we're the most keen to see more of. Or we don't talk about it enough, right? It's like not action, all action is created equally. So I like this as a thing to debate because I think that there's some value in us trying to be a bit more precise about what it is that we really want to see when we say increased action. Because if guys are just going to run a bunch, like I'm, I'm game for that. That sounds cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a good point. The one other one that I really, Thought is worth considering. And, and I thought The Athletic did a really good job on this piece from Ken Rosenthal and Brittany Garoli, which was about the the amount of pine tar or sticky stuff, whatever it is people are using in baseball. And if you prohibit that and really, and you know, MLB has said at various points, we're cracking down on this and then nothing actually happens. But it seems like pitcher, I mean, several pitchers were quoted in that article, uh, not, you know, not with their names attached, but saying that it's too much and I think if hitters and pitchers all agree that that the amount of sticky stuff used on a baseball is too much uh, and that it's having too big of an effect on spin rate and movement and you know Rob Rob Arthur mentioned that the ball uh the changes to the ball increase movement as well that that that's all gonna impact how how hard it is to be a hitter. And yeah, I I just think that one is, again, in concert with some other changes. I think that's one that we should really consider. And I understand that there are safety concerns with guys throwing as hard as they are. But I guess my thought is, like, if you are, I think, I feel like Jose Alvarado is the guy that people bring up a lot in terms of just max effort very high velocity and doesn't know where it's going a lot of the time. If you're a team, like you might not be able to tolerate how often Jose Alvarado misses the zone. And also that if you're Jose Alvarado, maybe you need to change how you throw if you can't find the zone at all without using. And again, I'm not accusing him of using it. I don't know. But, you know, if you're someone in that mold of player who is using sticky stuff on the ball, you know, maybe you have to change your approach to what you do.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one other idea you brought up briefly Is the idea of bringing back The fair foul (laughs) bunt (laughs) Which is uh, a bunt that Lands in fair territory but then Spins foul and is uh, Considered a a playable ball anyway Which is something that like 19th century hitters uh, like Ross Barnes exploited And so this is no longer legal But it would be interesting Right that'd be one way to combat the Shift and we've gotten related Questions just about moving the foul lines like we got an email from listener joseph who said 1970 saw the sort of minor league experiments we're seeing in 2021 the eastern league had a dh the new york penn league had an automatic intentional walk and the gulf coast league expanded foul lines bending outward an extra three degrees beyond the first base bag all were deemed failures at the time yet the first two are now a part of mlb Even Charlie Finley's rejected proposal Of a 20-second pitch clock has been Included in organized baseball I think that's something he tested in the 60s Although his orange baseballs From the early 70s have not come back Into vogue but (laughs) Joseph continued If baseball is pretty much literally throwing Everything against the wall why are they not looking Into expanded foul lines If successful it appears to check every box MLB Is looking for as it obviously would Increase the possibility of hitting doubles or triples Down the line and force shifting Defenses to cover a larger area thus cutting down on easy ground outs and We've gotten other emails about that Andrew Patreon supporter just wrote in to say I've heard people mention moving the fences back, which is interesting, but I haven't heard anyone mention moving the foul lines instead of having them go out at 90 degrees from home plate. In order to increase offense, you could do something like 100 or 110 degrees, but still leave the bases where they currently are. You could rebuild all the stadiums to account for this, but the easiest way so you don't have to change stadium or field sizes would be just to have the foul lines go straight until they meet the side walls of the stadium and then just follow the walls to the current foul pole anything that hits the wall is foul and to hit a home run you still have to hit it between the existing foul lines at what angle does it really put a strain on defenses so that's an interesting idea that uh, I haven't really heard discussed much Uh, again don't know if it's my favorite still feel like increasing contact is still more essential and beneficial than changing what happens after contact is made but you know those things can go together to some extent because if you make it more advantageous to put the ball in play then you incentivize Players to do that more often to the extent that they can against unhittable pitches.
1: Yeah, I I think generally when I've I've thought about, you know, because again, we we just talked about expanding the amount of ground fielders have to cover is is a way to increase batting average on balls in play. And yep. I thought about foul lines and then I thought, well, then you're changing how far a runner has to go, you know, on the base paths. But I right. guess as, as they said, you don't have to. I never really thought about it like that. My reflex is to be like, well, that I don't think I like that, but I could, it's one of those ideas that I could see myself kind of coming around to. Not that I necessarily would like it, but I I don't think I would mind it. It would just be different. And it's kind of like if baseball, you know, one of the the classic questions of this podcast is like, if baseball were different, how different would it be? And I don't know. I mean, there's no reason that the base has to be the edge of the the fair foul line. As far as bringing back the, The bunts, I don't know if it's obvious, but this is another Patrick Dubuque suggestion and, and (laughs) hobby horse. And I actually, I, I really like it. I think I'll give you a, a preview of an article. Uh, there's actually two coming, but, but one is coming Friday from Rob Arthur on defensive positioning. And one nugget in there is that there's two positions that have changed. The most in terms of how deep they play, and one of them is third base. Over the last six seasons, on sure. average, it's it's moved back. I think again, I'm not. I I read a draft of it, but it's not in front of me. I think it's eight feet that third basemen on average have moved back over the last six years, and that is you know again, if you if if there's a threat of a bunt, I think you have to be in. But between the pitcher, the catcher, and the distance between the mound and the foul line, there's not a lot of worry about that happening. And so I don't think it's even just the shift, to be clear. It's it's it, it really does, you know, that's on regular, you know, unshifted balls as well. And so I think doing something like incentivizing players to bunt changes how defenses have to react and position themselves. And that's part of why Babip has dropped. And so I think that would be I don't know. I I I don't think it would be an especially harmful I don't think it would be used a ton, but I think even the threat of it changes how defenses have to kind of compose themselves.
0: It strikes me that part of our problem here is one that that sort of comes before we recommend changes or try things out in the indie leagues or partner leagues or minor leagues, which is that I think there is just a, a fundamental reticence and distrust on the part of a lot of observers to say, let's make all of these changes and we want the body that's overseeing that to be MLB because we don't necessarily think that they're going to do a good job or they're going to prioritize the right things or that their aesthetic is the same as ours or that what's being sort of shifted around is being done to try to increase competition or have players like doing their very best while still having some sort of balance but that other things might be in play like how easy it is to bet on it or whatever right like we just between the way that the the ball has been handled and and messaged around. And then some of these other looming considerations that the league has to deal with, I think part of our problem is that we're just a little bit nervous about entrusting really big fundamental changes. And and some of these are smaller, but some of them are really big. They would have a, a really meaningful impact on the way that the game is played. We're reticent to sort of entrust that to the sports governing body, which is a problem. So I guess one of the things that I wonder is like, what is the mechanism? I know that we have there's a there's a rules committee and a competition committee and those committees are staffed by people who work in the game. But I'm curious what process we want to see these sorts of changes kind of go through and what the the sort of bar is that needs to be cleared before we're satisfied that they should have a place in the majors. Build a committee, Craig.
1: I was going to say Ben. <laughs> I don't, I'm going to be honest. I, that's a, it's a good question. I don't have a, a great answer to in terms of how... I would prefer Nuts. it come to, you know, come to the fore. I right. I think what it is right now would be like it's Theo Epstein, right? Yeah. That's that's where we're at right now. I don't know. I, I think the first thing you said though is a is a really important one, which is that it's about trust. Right. Um and I think that's why uh Theo Epstein got hired to do this job, rightly or wrongly. I think he's viewed as someone people trust to do a good job at the things he's tasked to do and i think that the level of distrust and that people don't want you know the the maybe this is is to some degree how how the the 538 podcast host feels which is that you know that like you don't want to see mlb mess with this because they're likely to mess it up i certainly understand that notion and it's something that that i think i confronted a lot when discussing these potential changes but i also think the need for for changes is, to me, so apparent that, like, we've got to do something. Yeah. And I'd rather try something. And I think it, it is, as we've said throughout, like, it needs to be tested. It should be measured. It should not be, you know, kind of pell-mell kind of attitude towards it and just instituting it like uh, we we have another you you know you said this was a bit of a theme week it it is both uh, impromptu it kind of just happened in terms of timing and then also we we thought of ways to to fill it out and steve goldman is writing uh tomorrow about the balk r- rule, uh the year of the balk in I, I think it was eighty seven, where Dave Stewart got called for sixteen bucks in yeah. the year and eleven of them were in April. And like it was just like a change that <laughs> the commissioner was like, here we're changing how seriously we take the bulk rule and how we're gonna call it. And yeah. it was a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we've seen it with the, the neighborhood rule, right? They, right. they rescinded it mid year and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, it all needs to be kind of measured as to the best way to bring it, you know, which things end up getting measured. I, I don't. I don't have a good idea. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's tough. Yeah, yeah. year of the Bach was 88, I think. 88. Sorry, uh, mid email to us right now, correcting that. But I think <laughs> uh, yeah, there are some committees that exist already, like the competition right. committee, the playing yeah. rules committee. Like these are the bodies that are charged with this. But. Have thus far failed to fix the problem. So, you know, do we need some sort of new structure? Do we need some independent body? Like, I almost wonder whether the way that MLB eventually belatedly outsourced the investigation of the ball and the home run rate to Mm. basically a panel of scientists and physicists and statisticians, and then they put out their report that was like commissioned by MLB, but at least ostensibly independent of it. I wonder whether there needs to be something similar about just like what we want the game to look like. I I don't know, or at least whether that could be a component of it. I mean, I would want the players and the involved, league both yeah. to be involved yeah. and, and- – players don't always want to change things either and sometimes right, right. they can be a, a force to sort of obstruct this sort of change so it would be better if this were a collaborative process or even if there were some public component of like what do the fans want what do the experts who study this stuff think would be the most efficacious way to actually address these problems so it's sort of idealistic and probably pie in the sky but it would be nice to have an impartial party that was unbiased by game interests or the need to sell ad time, not just motivated by maximizing short-term revenue. It's kind of complicated, but I think the drumbeat is loud enough now, and this is just a constant enough story. It's just part of the narrative about the sport in a way that probably MLP would prefer for it not to be. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's risen to the point where they will have to do something about it. And I think the increased experimentation in the Atlantic League and the minor leagues is a, a sign of that. So it's just a matter of actually moving things from independent ball to affiliated ball and then from the minors to the majors. And that won't necessarily be quick or easy, but I think it does have to happen. And I think it will happen sometime soonish. And we should probably save some thoughts on this for the next time we talk about fixing baseball, like next week or whenever <laughs> that will be. I, I know people get to the next no hitter. Yeah, this conversation because, like, yeah, it's true that you can. Go back into the earliest days of baseball, like, you know, look up 19th century papers, and you can find people saying, Oh, how do we fix baseball? Baseball's boring. And that's just like a constant refrain throughout baseball history. But a lot of these things, like, they have been steady progressions. I mean, games have gotten a lot longer over that time. So it's not just people complaining about. Fashion or or music because it's not to their liking, or the new generation doesn't have the same taste, or something. It's like these things are actually changing. Like the strikeout rate is a lot higher than it used to be. Games are a lot longer than they used to be. There are a lot of reasons for that, but it's not just hand wringing over nothing. You know, it could still be excessive hand wringing, but these are real observed trends that are happening. So it's not just in our heads. Like the extent to which you're bothered by it, that varies, but the actual effects are are right there on the page and on the field. So it has to be addressed and and Craig Goldstein has solved it. So it's really just (laughs) a matter of whoever the decision maker is reading his articles, (laughs) putting this stuff into practice. So thank you, Craig, for coming on and walking us through all of this and, I guess uh, there was a bit of breaking news while we were trying to figure out how to fix baseball that I I should probably relate here because it's been a long time coming. The investigation into Mickey Calloway. Has concluded. <laughs> it's, okay. uh, it's been a mere, what has it been? I think the investigation was launched like February 1st, right around there. I and, just, uh,
1: it, it's the uh, Titanic meme. Like it's been
2: 84 right. <laughs> years. And... <laughs> yes. And it's May 26th. So it has finally reached a resolution. Here's MLB's statement from Rob Manfred. My office has completed its investigation into allegations of sexual harassment by Mickey Calloway, having reviewed all of the available evidence I have concluded that Mr. Calloway violated MLP's policies and that placement on the ineligible list is warranted. We want to thank the many people who cooperated with our Department of Investigations in their work, which spanned Mr. Callaway's positions with three different clubs. The clubs that employed Mr. Callaway each fully cooperated with DOI, including providing emails and assisting with identifying key witnesses. Harassment has no place within Major League Baseball, and we are committed to providing an appropriate work environment for all those involved in our game. So it took a really long time. It ended up where one would have imagined That it would right after reading the first Athletic article about this But eventually it, it led to That place so the ineligible list That it, it basically means that you can't have a job In baseball until the end Of next season At minimum and then after that He can apply for reinstatement Sort of like the Brandon Taubman punishment But I guess a little longer Callaway himself has put out A statement he says my family And I fully support MLB strong." Stat- Against harassment and discrimination, and are grateful to the commissioner and his office for their thorough investigation. I apologize to the women who shared with investigators any interaction that made them feel uncomfortable. To be clear, I never intended to make anyone feel this way and didn't understand that these interactions might do that or violate MLP policies. However, those are my own blind spots, and I take responsibility for the consequences. In my 25 years in professional baseball, I've never taken for granted the privilege of being even a small part of this great game of ours. To say I regret my past poor choices would be an understatement. I remain hopeful that I can return to baseball when eligible at the conclusion of next season. But for now, I plan to work on my own shortcomings and repairing any damage I have caused with my colleagues and particularly my family. So as we speak... Mickey Calloway is still listed as the Angels pitching coach on angels.com. but They, they s- released a statement that uh, saying that
1: they are ending his employment with the yeah. Angels effective immediately. Yes. Right, so. Uh, so congratulations to Artie Moreno for not having to pay Mickey Calloway's <laughs> salary, which is why it took this long.
2: Yeah, there was some speculation. Right. I mean, you know, they could have fired him and not had the investigation at all or, or fired him not. Pending the investigation and just paid him and then done the investigation after that. Seems like a good idea to do an investigation, not just to establish his culpability beyond all doubt, but to turn up the full extent of the bad behavior. Of course, I I do understand that, you know, it's better not to pay him, (laughs) not just because the angel (laughs) saves him cash, but also because, hey, he's not making money for being a, a terrible person for a long time, seemingly. But also... One of the reasons that was sort of suggested as why is this taking so long is like maybe the idea that it had implicated others or that like other things had come to the fore, like mm. who knew about Callaway's behavior and what came out in all these emails and texts and everything. And so. As we record here, right after this announcement came out, there's no immediate indication that there will be further punishment or anyone else caught up in this. So, you know, they always kind of want to snip things neatly so that it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, it was the the bad apple or, you know, it's like the one team, the one person who was doing this thing as opposed to a pervasive problem. So whether anyone else will get caught up in this, I, I guess, remains to be seen. But for at least the long national Mickey Calloway investigation is finally at an end.
0: (sighs) I always feel like I'm supposed to have something profound to say in moments like this, and I really don't, except to say that, I guess the thing I'll say is that I'm grateful that there were women who came forward to talk about this issue, because it's very scary to do that, and so I appreciate their willingness to do that. I appreciate the reporters who worked on this Conducting themselves in a way that made those people feel comfortable coming forward and talking to them So I guess i'll focus on that part of this and hope that when we move forward as an industry Not just in front offices, but like across baseball Whether it's in media or on the field that we all try to make the places we work safe for everyone and that we hold each other accountable and that starts with uh, Everybody we all have to bear that responsibility to keep each other safe. So yeah, mm-hmm. I guess that's the thing I'll say. I don't know how profound it is, but I yeah. I don't know. I don't hopefully, know, man.
2: Hopefully some of the changes that have come about because of this will make it easier to report this sort of abuse in the future, but also hopefully it, it just like it won't be on the the targets of that abuse to be the ones to report yeah. it necessarily. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: and I guess we'll wait to see if there's any subsequent action that comes out of this. Like you said there is there is a seeming instinct to nip things neatly, but- Given how long he was allowed to behave this way and how many organizations it happened across, I think it would be naive to assume that he didn't at least benefit from a lot of people feeling like they didn't have to say something to him directly. So I hope that that culture continues to improve and change. Because like you said, it shouldn't just be the responsibility of the, the people who get victimized by creeps to yeah. like shift things around. They're a little bit busy recovering from being victimized by creeps. So we all need to take a hand in this sort of thing. I'm really mostly just tired of having to talk about it all the time. Yeah. It's really a bummer for for everyone to have to be reminded that the industry they work in isn't, Perfectly welcoming to them to say nothing of the people who have to endure this kind of treatment every day. So let's all do better so we don't have to talk about it so damn much because it's pretty mm. exhausting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Fix baseball in all of the ways. Not yeah. Not just the but <laughs> also the other ways. Yeah. So you can find Craig Goldstein, who is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, at Baseball Prospectus. You can also hear him on the Five and Dive podcast. And although I cannot in good conscience recommend <laughs> it, you can follow him on Twitter. <laughs> at C.D. Goldstein. Thanks again, Craig. Thanks for having me. All right, well, after we finished recording, Adolis Garcia hit another home run, his 16th on the season. Yeah, I guess this guy is good. And we also got a big foreign substance story involving one of our subjects on our last episode, Joe West. Cardinals manager Mike Schilt got ejected after West and fellow umpire Dan Bellino wanted to check Giovanni Gallegos' cap because of suspicions about a foreign substance. And then Schilt kind of went off on the way that MLB is policing or not policing foreign substances in a post-game interview. Interesting stuff That I imagine Meg and I will discuss Next time Couple of quick points Following up On our last episode 1698 We briefly discussed The idea of baseball Being a winter Olympic sport Instead of a summer Olympic sport We also discussed All of the obstacles To that happening And why it wouldn't work But we neglected To mention one Pretty important one A few listeners Pointed this out to us This email is from Darren Patreon supporter Who says I'm writing to answer Meg's question Regarding baseball Potentially being In the winter Olympics Currently the Olympic charter mandates that all events in the winter games must be sports that are played on snow or ice. Well, yes, that is a bit of a problem. Darren continues, I'm a big fan of the bicycle racing discipline of cyclocross, which is a form of off-road bike racing that is primarily done in the fall and winter and known for races involving challenging weather conditions and mud. Think northern France or Belgium in December. For several years, cycling's governing body, the UCI, has made a push with the IOC to include cyclocross in the Winter Olympics. And while snow or ice is certainly possible at races and makes for epic conditions, it is by no means a requirement, and therefore, the UCI's attempts at getting cyclocross into the Winter Olympics have so far been unsuccessful. My guess is if cyclocross is not eligible for the Winter Games, then that makes for grim odds of baseball's inclusion. Of course, maybe that just raises the question, how would baseball be different if it were played on snow and ice? But I'm fairly sure that's been answered on the pod before. Indeed it has, I think way back on episode 265 we talked about baseball and ice, and there is some precedent for baseball being played on ice primarily in the 19th century, but it is not ideal. Another thing that's not ideal, the Mets lineup these days, and that's also something we touched on in 1698 when we discussed the incredible confluence of injuries on the Mets roster. After we had that discussion, the Mets selected outfielder Billy McKinney off waivers from the Brewers, and he was slated to bat cleanup for the Mets on Wednesday night before their game against the Rockies was postponed. Billy McKinney batting cleanup is, as they say, not what you want. But hey, still in first place, the only rule is it has to work. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pled some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Michael Stevens, Michael Peretti, Maxwell Rowe, KDB, and Brian Herr. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastthefangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with one more episode before the end of this week. Talk to you then.
0: I've got a lot of hats. I've got a lot of hats.
2: Let's see.